This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we begin with the exciting new moment for labor in the United States with labor reporter and writer Stephen Greenhouse, author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Stephen says the unionizing victories at Amazon and now 81 Starbucks stores, as well as the spread of union drives to many of workplaces in retail, higher education, the media, and healthcare signifies a moment so promising for labor that we'd have to go back to the organizing in the 1930s to see anything comparable. We'll get the details and the big picture from Stephen Greenhouse. We then turn to Russia's war in Ukraine 12 weeks in. Ilya Matveyev, a young researcher specializing in Russian politics and political economy, joins us with his analysis of the domestic situation at home in Russia. Putin has taken an increasingly hard line against dissent. And while polls show widespread support for Putin's so-called military operation, most reports note that support for the war is tepid, not enthusiastic. Ilya Matveyev unpacks what the polling does or doesn't show. And we also get details of the impact of economic sanctions on the population, the state of industry and the economy, the divisions in the population and among the elite. And because Russia is losing the war, we also ask what this means for Putin's hold on power. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to begin today on a very bright note. In fact, the brightest on the horizon in the United States these days, maybe even in the world. And that is the exciting new battles and successes for labor. And this is something that for those of us who have been following labor for the longest time, probably didn't even imagine possible. It's at the level, in my view, of enthusiasm and excitement of something probably like the 1930s. But we'll go there and we'll talk about that. I'm very thrilled to have Stephen Greenhouse back with us. It's been a long time. Last time I talked to Steve, he was the key and important and probably only labor reporter for the New York Times. He worked there for years and he is now a senior fellow at the Century Foundation and the author, among other books, of the latest one is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. I can imagine your next book won't start with Beaten Down, <laughs> but maybe it will. I want to welcome you to the show and just say Steve has an op-ed that will appear in the Los Angeles Times on Monday, and it's aptly titled, let's see what they come up with for a title, but right now it's called Exciting Moment for Labor, and that's what we're going to begin with. On this show, we've been tracking labor forever. We did a lot of work on what was called Striketober. We followed the Amazon travails and victories. And we had one show looking at Starbucks. I think that's probably where we're going to start today, Stephen. And that is that from two or three franchises in Buffalo and then in Boston, Starbucks outlets that had 20, 25 workers each, they had union victories and the naysayers were saying, oh, this is a small workplace, so what? And yet now we see this blossoming. Hundreds seem to be on the verge of petitioning for labor elections. Where do we stand and, and welcome to the show? First, thanks, Susie. Thanks for the introduction. Very nice to be here. You know, I started writing about labor for the New York Times back in 1995. And, and so I've been writing about labor for 27 years now. And my strong sense, Susie, is that this is the most exciting, most inspiring time for labor, certainly since I started writing 27 years ago. But really, I don't think there's been such excitement about labor perhaps since the 1960s when gazillions of public service workers were flocking into unions. And some labor experts I speak to say there really hasn't been so much excitement and inspiration about unions since the late 1930s, which is amazing to contemplate, you know, with the huge famous historic Flint sit-down strike of 1936-37, which unionized the biggest company in the nation, General Motors, and that really inspired a huge wave of unionization. I think what we've seen now recently with the huge, unlikely, unexpected victory at Amazon in Staten Island, and then this huge, unexpected string of 
victory after victory after victory at Starbucks. These two have been the most exciting things to happen in the labor movement in many years. And what's really extraordinary, I think, Susie, is that so many young people are inspired by unions. So many young people are rushing to join unions, not just Amazon and Starbucks, but workers at Trader Joe's in Massachusetts are seeking to unionize and REI in Manhattan unionized. We've seen all these adjunct professors unionizing. In California, we saw 17,000 grad student researchers and teachers unionizing. And now undergraduate workers are unionizing. At Grinnell College in Iowa, they voted 371 to 6 to form a campus-wide union of dining hall workers and library workers. And at Dartmouth University, a conservative college, undergraduate dining hall workers voted 52 to 0 to unionize. So there's like this huge exciting buzz about unions, and especially so about young workers. So the question is, how big will this wave grow? It's growing. The only question is, you know, will it become just bigger or will it somehow become huge? And just to pick up on your point, Susie, so what's happening with Starbucks now is amazing. You know, one or two Starbucks voted to unionize in Buffalo in December, and now 81 have unionized and Workers and nearly 200 others have petitioned for union elections. And I suspect by the end of the year, it will be 500 Starbucks petitioning for union elections. And, but, you know, I speak to management side lawyers. They said they've never seen anything like this. Our friend John Logan, who teaches labor studies at San Francisco State, you know, John is probably the nation's leading expert on union busting and anti-union mm-hmm. lawyers. And he says anti-union consultants often boast that they win 95% of the time defeating unions. And here at Starbucks, the union is winning 90% of the time. That's just amazing and inspiring. So the question is, can this energy, enthusiasm, inspiration continue to spread, not just within Starbucks, not just within Amazon, but to McDonald's and Chipotle and Burger King and Walmart and other areas? Well, Walmart is a case all of its own. And there's been, you know, a lot of there was organizing for the longest time, just as now there's organizing at Amazon, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And I, I kind of wanted to begin with, we're at a point with the lowest level of union participation in the private sector that we've seen between six and seven percent, whereas union density, I think, in the 50s was 35 percent, something like that. So we've seen the spectacular public sector workers strikes, the teachers strikes in 2018. And then, of course, the generalized, I guess, revolt against austerity around the world in 2019, which I think they're all tied together in a way that you've got these younger people who aren't infected with the anti-union propaganda that other generations have had. And they've also had their future cut off and they see this as their only possible defense. Others have said, well, this is just the retail sector. This isn't industrial unions. But we did see John Deere workers on strike, and we've seen other kinds on strike. So maybe we could just talk about the difference, say, between public and private sector unionizing retail versus industrial. Sure. So in my book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, at the very last minute, I edited a chapter on something I wasn't expecting to write about, on the teacher strikes. You know, in 2018, there were these huge, inspiring teacher strikes, first in West Virginia, then in Oklahoma, then in Arizona, then in Los Angeles, and a second big, huge, important teacher strike in Chicago. There are smaller teacher strikes in Kentucky. And those are inspiring. And, and those teachers were saying, we're fed up. We're tired of being pushed around by conservative red state legislatures who keep giving tax breaks to already rich corporations, to keep giving tax breaks to fracking and fossil fuel companies and keep freezing budgets for school districts and teachers and public services. And the teachers really stood up in a very inspiring way to say, we have to stop this. Our government can't just serve the rich and corporations. Our government needs to serve students and public schools and teachers. And what was especially inspiring in my view about the teacher strikes is the huge number of parents and students and just folks in the community who banded together with the teachers to say something's broken. These teachers are respected members of the community and maybe many people are poo-pooing unions, but the union is standing up and doing the right thing. I think you're right, Susie, that in ways these teacher strikes really helped set the table for this wave of unionization. Now, I think the teacher strikes, you know, of course, in the public sector 
helped make many younger people feel better about unions in general. So you're right, Susie, that the percentage of private sector workers in unions is extremely low, just 6%. And that's down from about 35%. And it's really the lowest been in probably a century. You probably have to go back to 1910, 1920 to find such a low percentage of workers of, of unions in the private sectors. Whereas in the public sector, basically one in three, 33% of workers are in unions. And a big reason for that is when governments, state governments in California or New York or Washington State or Massachusetts give their public employees a right to unionize, they don't fight hammer and tongue, tooth and nail against unionization. They say, it's fine if you want to unionize, if you want to have a voice at work, that's great. But in the private sector, when workers seek to unionize, whether it's Amazon or Starbucks or Walmart or Target or Trader Joe's, companies fight very, 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 very hard to keep you from unionizing. So that's why there are all these crazy disconnects that so many workers in the public sector unionize, but not in the private sector. And one of the reasons, Susie, I say this is such an exciting time for unions is, you know, for instance, you look at the annual Gallup poll about how do Americans feel about unions. And in the most recent poll, 68% of Americans said they approve of unions. That's the highest level in over half a century. And 77% of young workers, 18 to 34, say they approve of unions. So that's very encouraging. You know, during the Great Recession, all these Republicans are beating up on unions saying, oh, the reason we have this recession, the reason the city, the state has this budget deficit, oh, it's the big bad unions. And people realize with all this income equality, with gazillions of dollars spent on stock buybacks, making rich shareholders even richer, they're realizing something is seriously broken with the economy after years and years, decades and decades of wage stagnation. I think people looking more favorably at unions as a way to reduce income inequality, to lift average workers. And I think the pandemic has also played a huge, sometimes unheralded role. I think so many workers had such a hard time during the pandemic and, you know, fought bravely to get through it, to survive, you know, whether you're a grocery cashier or a warehouse worker for Amazon or your UPS or a food delivery person. I mean, you risk your life every day. And one of the things that really shocked me is that so many companies that say, well, we're going to stop caring only about maximizing profits. We're going to stop caring only about serving our shareholders. We're going to really try to serve all stakeholders, including employees. You know, what shocked me was that so few U.S. corporations decided to pay hero pay or hazard pay to their brave frontline essential workers who worked at the cash registers and pharmacies or supermarkets, who delivered packages for either Amazon or UPS or FedEx, you know, who worked in meatpacking plants. You know, all these essential workers, we hailed them as, as so important to keeping the economy running, yet very, very, very few American companies you know, saw fit to provide them with a few extra hours of pay. And I fear, I think that that showed huge contempt to workers. I think so many workers felt that, that we risk our lives every day while the CEOs are raising their pay 10, 20, 30% a year, while the $200,000 a year white collar workers are working at home. You know, we $10 and $12 hour workers who risk our lives aren't getting extra pay. And we often did get personal protective equipment and we have to work all the harder because there's a shortage of workers and they jerk around our schedule and they're still not treating us with the respect we deserve. So I think the pandemic really angered and frustrated and exasperated a lot of workers. And then it, at the same time, really jazzed them, made them excited about unionizing because they see things are broken and they see that their employers are not going to fix it. So they really try to take it in their own hands to create collective power, collective voice. And the name of my book was Beaten Down. A lot of workers feel beaten down. And now they feel very worked up because of all the income inequality, all the wage stagnation, all the mistreatment during the pandemic. And now things are looking up. So maybe we're going down from beaten down to looking up. I don't know. So. That's great. I wanted to just interject there that during the Ayatsi strike, below the line uh, workers in the film and media industries, I interviewed people who said because of the lockdown, for the first time, they could walk their kids to school or they could you know, spend a few hours in the evening with family. 
And it caused this sort of big rethinking about, you know, what work means to them, especially given how awful the conditions were and the pay wasn't all that great. And they had to drive far and they would come home tired and sometimes have to stop on the road to sleep because they were in danger of getting in an accident. And so it caused a big rethinking about working conditions altogether. They were already unionized, but now they're, you know, demanding different conditions. So this is all coming together. It's kind of like what we call the big picture, right, for labor. The other side of the big picture is the traditional labor movement in the AFL-CIO, those who are already organized. And you write about this in your op-ed piece that's going to appear in the LA Times on Monday, Steve Greenhouse. And maybe we could just ask about, you know, the difference in attitudes there and whether or not, you know, in an ideal world, the AFL-CIO would make this their cause and just put all resources possible into these efforts. But in so many in Amazon and in Starbucks, you know, we're seeing new forms of organizing, self-organizing, as you call it, and different unions. That's a great question. So a lot of us who care about the welfare of workers in America have been saying, you know, workers really need to stand up because conditions really aren't great. I think for many years, many decades, workers were just unfortunately taking on the chin, were being squeezed when corporate profits were reaching record levels, when Wall Street kept reaching record levels, corporations were freezing wages or not increasing them to keep up with inflation, were reducing health benefits, were reducing and getting rid of regular pensions and replacing them with 401ks which weren't nearly as good. And things are getting worse and worse for workers in many ways as income inequality increased. So I think now, you know, a lot of workers, especially young workers, they just said, we're not going to take it anymore. And a recent study done by professors at Columbia and MIT found that 74% of workers aged 18 to 24 say they would vote to join a union today if they could. That's far more than the 52% for average Americans. So like young people, they're like ready to move. They're not discouraged about unions the way some older people are. They're ready to move. And I think the, their unhappiness with the pandemic, I think a lot of young workers have been emboldened with through Black Lives Matter, many march with Black Lives Matter, many march with B2, many march with the Fight for 15. So I think several factors really came together to really embolden and invigorate young people to unionize. So there's kind of this like new union movement going on. These young people at Starbucks, these young people at REI, these young adjunct professors, these young workers at all these museums, you know, thousands of workers at museums are unionizing, thousands of workers in, in my field journalism are unionizing, you know, people in all these nonprofit organizations, the Audubon Society, the ACLU, the Center for American Progress. I mean, so many young people are unionizing. And I'm concerned that the big traditional unions aren't doing nearly enough to like take advantage to make this very promising moment grow. I mean, the question is whether this will be a fleeting moment of excitement with some increases at Starbucks and maybe Amazon, or will this really be turned into a lasting and powerful movement that will finally, 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 after decades, reverse this slide in organized labor. And let's not forget, as you said, you know, back in the 1950s, more than one in three American workers were in a union. Now it's just one in 10. And unions are not nearly as powerful as they used to be. They have a harder time passing legislation for higher minimum wage or for better pensions. So I think it's unfortunate that the large unions and that the AFL-CIO, at least so far, really haven't rushed forward to say, this is an, such an important moment. This excitement among young workers is so promising. It really is the best opportunity in decades to halt the slide of labor. And let's really step forward with millions of dollars, with you know help and organizers, with lawyers to help go to the NLRB to make sure workers who are fired for supporting a union are reinstated. And I think the resources of the older unions could really help these young unions like the independent labor union that organized Amazon to really grow and expand. You know, Christian Smalls, the fired Amazon worker on Staten Island, who really got the ball rolling and spearheaded that incredible unionization effort that unionized an 8,300 employee warehouse at Staten Island. He's so inspired and that victory so inspired workers elsewhere in the country. He said workers at over 100 
other Amazon facilities have contacted him and say, we want to unionize too. It would be great if we could reproduce and have 100 Christian smalls and, and distribute them all around the country, but we can't. But it would be great if unions could help fly Christian Smalls and his co-leader, Derek Palmer, to Amazons around the country so they could teach them the tricks, the secrets of succeeding through bottom-up, worker-to-worker, self-organizing. So I think this really is a key moment for labor. It's kind of the moment that so many labor leaders have been hoping for for decades. They say we need lots of enthusiasm about unions. We need unionization to spread like wildfire. And that is what is happening at Starbucks. And that's what's happening at nonprofit organizations. That's what's happening among journalists. But we really need the big unions to step forward and really help this wildfire spread. And so far, I really haven't seen it. And this is the most promising moment for labor in years. And the young workers are extremely excited. I think a lot of older union leaders are just suffering from inertia and feel too beaten down and feel it's too hard to unionize. And like this is a moment where unionization has really been succeeding tremendously among young workers. So it's really time for the older unions and the older labor leaders to step up. Well, let me just ask you on that, because bringing up the name Christian Smalls, he's like a household name already. And I do want to talk to you a little bit about the kind of organizing model that he used. And I mean, it's such a huge victory, you know, because Bezos and of course they were seated at Starbucks too. They're pulling out every anti-union trick that they can. And even the NLRB throughout the Bessemer election and said there had to be a redo. But I want to go back to what you just brought up at the end about those older trade union bureaucrats that we call them or officialdom who in your article, I think you said they may be jealous or maybe they've just gotten so used to their work rhythm or that they have an interest in the status quo. They get their salaries. They're not particularly interested in organizing. I want to see if you can, you know, enlighten us a little bit more on your thinking anyway, on what's happened. And maybe you just said the younger workers need to step up, but maybe these ones need to step aside if they're not going to help. Let's hear your thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. So, In my book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, I explained that corporations in America fight harder against unionizing than corporations in any other wealthy industrial nation. I was once an economic reporter for the New York Times in Europe, and I wrote about corporations in Germany and France and Italy and Spain and Britain and Sweden. And maybe corporate CEOs there don't love unions, but they know unions are legitimate social institutions and, and corporations need to work with unions to increase profits and productivity and production. And they get along pretty well. It's very different in the U.S. I think too many CEOs see unions as not legitimate. They see them as the enemy. They see them as a nuisance, not to work with, but to try to crush. And so going back to Ronald Reagan and the Greyhound strike and the great copper lockout, I think a lot of labor leaders here have seen how aggressive and nasty corporations can be in fighting unions and they see how hard it is. So I think a lot of old union leaders have kind of gotten discouraged and they say, why should I spend a million dollars of my members' dues money to try to unionize 5,000 workers when there's a 50-50 chance I'll lose when corporations are so aggressively anti-union? So their attitude is kind of beaten down and they face inertia. Whereas someone like Christian Smalls, who was fired for leading a demonstration because Amazon wasn't doing enough to protect workers against the pandemic. Christian Smalls basically says, F that, we got to do something about it. So, you know, he saw that the retail wholesale and department store workers had lost the union election in Amazon and Alabama. He says, I'm going to do it a different way. I'm going to form an independent union of Amazon workers, by Amazon workers, and for Amazon workers. And this kind of bottom-up independent union, I think, had two very big advantages over traditional unionization efforts. One is I think the workers really liked it when their co-workers were like leading the effort. They know these are our friends. These are people who have suffered the same slings and arrows that we've suffered. They, they know the insane stresses we face. They know how Amazon workers get injured. They know how Amazon workers face constant monitoring. And yes, you know, there are all these great outside union organizers, paid staff organizers who try to do the best they can. But it's one thing, you know, when your co-workers like Christian Smalls and Derek Palmers are out there sticking their necks out and they know your problems and you've known them for years and you trust them. 
And it's much harder for paid union staff organizers to develop the same rapport. And in my book, I write about how tilted the playing field is against unions when they seek to unionize a typical warehouse or factory, because corporations like Walmart or Starbucks or Amazon can propagandize against the unions 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They mm. could play anti-union videos in the break room, in the lunchroom. They could put up banners. They could require you, you know, to attend these mandatory meetings where they tell you how awful unions are. Yet under American law, companies have the right to prohibit outside union organizers from setting foot on company property. But when you have a union like the Amazon Labor Union, which is by, for, and of co-workers, they get in the warehouse every day. They can't be kept out. And that really creates an advantage. They're at work, they're in the lunchroom, they're in the break room, they're talking to you at the entrance, talking to you at the exit. And I think that also gave the Amazon Labor Union a big advantage that organizing efforts by big traditional unions using paid organizers have a hard time overcoming. So you know, this model of an independent union is really a good model. And I should add one other thing is that the main argument so many companies use in trying to fight against unions is they say they're outsiders, they're third parties, mm. they're greedy, they just want money for themselves. But when there's an independent union that is of, by, and for your coworkers, you're going to say, these aren't outsiders. This is not a third party. These are my coworkers. This is us. So I think this new model, which is really succeeding, I mean, it's an old model that was very successful in the 1930s, and it kind of was in abeyance largely for many years, but it's really come back in spades. And we're seeing that model at Starbucks as organizing goes from 10 stores to 20 stores to 80 stores to 200 stores. So I think a lot of smart people interested in increasing worker power to make sure unions are stronger so that corporate power doesn't dominate so much. I think a lot of smart people thinking about labor say, hey, there's this really good new model now, you know, with all this youthful energy and these bottom-up worker-to-worker self-organizing efforts, we should really jump on these and capitalize these and try to make the most we can out of them because the enthusiasm of young workers together with the success of this self-organizing this worker-to-worker organizing, bottom-up organizing at Starbucks and Amazon, you know, these are models that could really perhaps transform labor and finally, 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 after decades, reverse, halt labor's decline. I share your enthusiasm, Steve Greenhouse, and I have one final question, and that's the politics. You mentioned labor law. And of course, most people in Europe don't realize the extent to which American labor has its hands tied behind its back because of labor law. And we've been fighting every Democratic administration since Truman has had a bill on its desk to repeal the labor law or to make it easier for workers to organize. And now it's called the PRO Act. And we have had, I think, the examples of the Bernie Sanders campaign and his pro-labor stance and AOC and the others has been sort of on the political counterpart to all this grassroots organizing. But what would you finally say, I guess, about the politics and where that's going and whether or not, you know, I have to just add to Biden has been very pro-union and has made statements that we've never heard from other presidents, even almost intervening on the side of workers in strikes. In, in my book, I go into this at length. I know we don't have much time left. So yeah. one thing is that there are many very pro-union, pro-worker Democrats, but there are also far too many pro-corporate Democrats who don't do enough to help workers. And I think Joe Biden sees that the decline in unions, the decline in worker power has been very bad in many ways. He and an increasing number of Democrats see that it's led to more wage stagnation. It's led to more income inequality. And it's weakened the Democratic Party. And that's why, you know, the weakening of unions, you know, it helped Donald Trump win in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So I think Joe Biden gets it. John Fetterman gets it. Sherrod Brown gets it. Tim Ryan, the Democratic nominee in Ohio, get it. And they realize that we, the Democrats, have to show that the Donald Trumps of the world and the J.D. Vances of the world are full of it when they say they're the champions of working class. In my book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, I say the Republicans make believe that the champions of workers, but Republicans generally want to stomp on crush unions. Like, how could you say you are pro-worker when you want to basically crush, cripple the main organization that fights for workers' unions? And I think Democrats 
have to do a far better job showing that they are visibly fighting for workers, not just try to enact the Protecting the Right to Organize Act and make it easier to unionize, but you know, fight for a higher minimum wage in a very visible way and show that Republicans are against that. You know, we are the only industrial country in the world that doesn't have a law guaranteeing paid parental and family leave. I mean, it's insane. We, the world's richest nation. So the Democrats really have to fight for this in a very visible way to show the Republicans will oppose that because they carry the corporation's water. But we, the Democrats, we're the friends of workers and we are going to fight for that. So I really think that the Democrats need to do a better job showing that they are fighting for typical workers and showing that Republicans, while they make believe they are the friends of workers, you know, they fight much harder to help workers and cut corporate taxes than they do to fight for workers. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. And I hope that your enthusiasm is as contagious and infectious. Those are the wrong words to use in a pandemic. But you get the point. I really enjoyed talking to you, Steve Greenhouse. And I'm going to talk up your book one more time. That is Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present and Future of American Labor. Stephen Greenhouse is a longtime labor and workplace reporter. He was for the longest time at the New York Times and now senior editor at the Century Foundation. Watch for his article on Monday in the LA Times about this exciting moment for labor. Steve Greenhouse, thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much. Keep well, Thank keep up good work. Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're going to continue our, I guess, long look, not so long, on uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. Today, we're recording this interview on day 87 of the war. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights has verified 3,838 civilian deaths, among them 256 children. That's in Ukraine as of May 19th and specifying that the real numbers could be much higher. Figures for the Russian side are really hard to verify, but estimates range up to about 24,000. My guest will maybe be able to correct me. But what we do know in terms of the state of Russian troops is that Putin has lifted the age requirement now at 40 for conscription, which really is another sign that Russia does not have the troop strength that it needs. And at the same time, New evidence of war crimes and executions in Bucha have emerged, covered in depth in Saturday's New York Times with video footage of eight men tied together walking to their execution and then a picture of their executed bodies. The coastal city of Mariupol, long under siege and virtually destroyed, is now in the hands of Russia. Evacuation has become impossible, and many Ukrainians from Mariupol are being held in what are called filtration camps. But Russia has scaled back from its initial war aims in what can only be described, I think, as a defeat, though a stalemate of sorts exists now as Russia has retreated to the east and to the south. And other latest news is Finland and Sweden have applied for NATO membership, meaning that it's closer to the doorstep of Russia than Ukraine in some ways. And the response has simply been that Russia has retaliated by halting natural gas Exports. So I've invited Ilya Matveyev to help us look at all of this situation, but especially the political economic situation domestically in Russia as a result of the war. Ilya is a researcher specializing in Russian politics and political economy. He's speaking everywhere these days. He's a founding editor of Open Left uh, RU and a member of the research group Public Sociology Laboratory. I don't know if that still exists, but you can Google Ilya, that's M-A-T-V-E-E-V, and find some of his writing. So we're going to start with, as I said, Ilya, at the domestic situation in Russia as a result of the war. So hundreds of thousands have left the country. That's an exodus of talent and dissent. I do want to know, like, in your broader overview, what possible impact do you think that may have for Russia post-war? And also your understanding just of the basic domestic situation politically and economically for the regime and the population. So let me just say one further thing. The country's divided. Most reports say evenly between support and dissent regarding the war, although propaganda and penalties for speaking out 
influence that figure. And I think you've said, and others have said that the polls are unreliable. Others say, well, no matter what, those who support the war don't do it enthusiastically. And the other side, of course, Putin has taken an increasingly hard line on dissent. So we don't really know. I have a bunch of other questions, but let's just start there with the exodus and the internal situation as you see it. Right. I would start with uh, the thing that you already mentioned, that polls are completely unreliable. And uh, now we have evidence of that. So sociologists have conducted a least experiment. It's a very clever technique to detect public opinion on sensitive topics, right? Apparently, it was used in uh, the United States first to learn about uh, racial stereotypes. Wow. (laughs) now, Now it is used across the world to learn about sensitive topics when people do not want to share their opinion directly. And so this experiment demonstrated unequivocally that people do hide their views, even uh, when asked by pollsters. So they hide their views. And when they're asked direct question, do you support the war or a special operation, right? So most of them would obviously say, of course I do, because there's a penalty for opposing the war. So literally a penalty for any kind of anti-war statement. So obviously people are afraid And this experiment demonstrates when they ask basically the same question in an indirect manner. So the share of people who say that they support the war decreases markedly. And like you said, I think it's about half and half, those who support and those who do not support the war. So, But but we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. And what we know is that people who do support the war so my colleagues, sociologists from Public Sociology Laboratory, so yes, it exists. Like okay. a, yes. uh, more like an informal group, but yeah, it exists. So they have taken uh, interviews uh, with just ordinary people who are supportive of the war, actually. Uh, these interviews, they reveal that there is no enthusiasm, right? There is no sort of bloodthirsty imperialism in Russian society. It's more like... I don't know what to think, so probably I will believe uh, the TV because I just don't know what to think. So this is the kind of narrative that you get. But ultimately, it doesn't even matter because our regime, the political regime in Russia, distanced itself from society in any way possible. So both from those who oppose the war, so this is just repression against them, and even those who support the war. So the Kremlin does not want any public support for the war that is not organized by Kremlin spin doctors. So they they actually prohibit demonstrations by nationalists who want to express their support for the war effort. But those demonstrations are prohibited because they do not come from the Kremlin itself. So what this is so Soviet, I have to say that there's no independent ideas. There's only those that are directed from above. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's the same sort of technique. So uh, they loathe any kind of grassroots action in society. Even uh, loyalists, even pro-Kremlin action, they do not want to see. So among other things, we saw a police raid in a nationalist uh, bookstore That is actually supportive of the war as well. So this is just gathering for Russian nationalists. They might not be those who actually go to war, but still they have this right-wing nationalist imperialist views. And so the bookstore was raided by police and they're in trouble as well, despite the fact that they do not oppose this thing. So this is the approach that the Kremlin has taken. This is pretty amazing. And I know that I think you posted the poll on Twitter and I should let people know that. Let's see, what is your Twitter handle so people can look you up? Is it that? And and underscore. Underscore. Right, right. Okay, so you can look it up because Elias tweets a lot and long threads so that you can follow literal articles. So this is really interesting because I was going to ask you, if, you know, nationalist, far-right, patriotic groups, which were always a bit of a worry, were growing. But what you're saying is that there's an equal sort of clamping down on both sides in terms of independent expression. And I think that 
kind of, to me, says that the regime feels threatened by anything that it cannot control, even if it's supportive of what the regime is doing. So that's it's really interesting because one, I've heard other Russian watchers, let's say, scholars say that the more isolated Russia gets and then endangered because of its isolation, the more support there will be for the regime because people have this nationalist you know, sentiment toward Russia. Maybe we should start with that before we go to more of the understanding of these polls and what people think and the demography of it. But could you just answer that one point? Do you think that's a danger that what the West is doing to not just weaken, but really harm Russia and isolate it, mm-hmm. it will cause a sort of reaction, a nationalist protective sort of one? Right. So I think it's the general point that describes every situation of sanctions. So when uh, the country is sanctioned, the population rallies behind the leadership, in fact. It's, it's just a general point. It applies to every country that was subject to sanctions. And I think to a certain extent, it's true. So people will not blame Kremlin for the sanctions. They will blame the West because ultimately it's the West that's imposed those sanctions. You know, there is certain logic to this. Right. On the other hand, I would point that there is another thing when sanctions will really hit the Russian economy, and this will happen in uh, a few months. So the situation will get progressively worse. And I think that unemployment will also get progressively worse because a lot of people are now furloughed and uh, they will be dismissed at some point. So now they receive, let's say, two thirds of the pay and they don't have any work because production stopped because of supply chain issues, because of uh, logistical, you know, import issues and stuff like this. So at some point, all those people will be fired. And uh, this can lead to labor protests, I think. So this is possible because this is going to be hundreds of thousands of people at some point, and they will not be happy about what's going on, and they will have questions. So I'm not saying that uh, it's going to be uh, you know, some kind of uprising, maybe solidarity-like uprising, like in Poland where, you know, a labor movement and intellectuals together topple the regime. So nothing like that. It's, it's not this kind of situation. But at the same time, I think that it's going to create a problem for the regime because workers in uh, provincial towns, they will not be happy about the situation. And in many places, this is the only work they can get. So in big cities, at least you can try to find another job. But in many places in Russia, those factories are the only place you can find a job, a normal job, right? And then they're closed down, well, because those companies left Russia, for instance, those uh, foreign companies, and even new owners, if they seize those factories, still they might not be able to resume production because of lack of components. So in order to produce something, you need to also to have components. And so they don't have components because of restriction on on exports, you know, in the West. And so they will be in trouble. So the factories can close indefinitely. And there are whole regions that depend on this industrial production that is dependent on foreign capital. For instance, in Kaluga, so it's a region in central Russia, there is uh, the whole cluster of factories. So there are three automobile factories, Volkswagen, Peugeot, and Volvo. So rather big automobile plants. And there are also 27 factories that supply components to those big automobile factories. So tens of factories are currently stopped because of this situation. So the big three auto plants that are not working, all those uh, supplier companies also not working. The workers are furloughed, so they receive some pay, but they do not go to work. Let me just ask uh, you one question about this. So, because you're describing a situation, this is exactly where I wanted to go about the sanctions. So, but are these the result of companies leaving or official sanctions imposed on Russia plus supply chain difficulties? Right. So as I understand, it's a, it's a combination of the two. Some of them are leaving. Another group say they cannot resume production because of logistical problems. And right. in fact, those problems are very severe. So logistical blockade is real and it's very difficult to import anything from the West 
or even from places outside the West, like South Korea, for instance, because South Korea also joined sanctions against Russia. So the developed world, let's say, it's difficult to import anything from developed world and imports declined something between 50% and 70% in the last two months. So it's like a third of the imports before the war. So even if those companies want to stay in Russia, they cannot uh, resume production normally because they do not have critical parts that they need for production. And this will create just a cascade of factory closures, rising unemployment, and a huge number of problems. And discontent as well. And I think in a recent interview I saw with you, you talked about who's being recruited to fight in this war. Many people have said that they're geographically and economically at the bottom, in a sense. Maybe you could describe that. Who are these soldiers? Much is made in the West, at least in the press that we're reading, but I'm also reading the Reduce and other sources that talk about Chechens coming in and fighting with the Russians. Maybe you could describe just a little bit of the sort of composition of the Russian troops. Right. So it's actually, let's say, a motley crew. So different, different groups coming together. On the one hand, you have people mobilized in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, and there was a complete full mobilization there, and every man was drafted into the army. And to me, this is a tragic situation, because if those people are caught by Ukrainians, so uh, they are charged with treason and sent Mm -hmm. to prison. So they are not exchanged for uh, uh, Ukrainian soldiers, as I understand. So, in fact, it's it's like a completely impossible situation for people who live in Donbass because they are drafted into the army against their will in many cases, you know. And then if they are caught by Ukrainians, then they're charged with treason and sent to prison as well. So they don't have any choice at all in this situation. And they're among the worst equipped brigades in the army. So mm-hmm. lack of equipment, lack of training. And reports are coming that Ukraine's advancing uh, near Kharkiv, and those Donbass troops are trying to stop the counteroffensive, but Russian army has left this side, this front. And so they're in a completely militarily disastrous position right now. So this is the first group. These are fighters from Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. Uh, then you have Russian regular army, and socioeconomically, I think it's safe to say that most of these people, they're professional soldiers. At, at this point, absolute majority of them, they're professional soldiers. If some of them are regular conscripts, then uh, the army tries to send them away from, from the battlefield. As I but is the, are the professionals, like here in the United States, it's economic conscription, not, you know. Yes, exactly. So they, they come from poor areas, from villages, a lot of them from very distant places. And the economic motivation to join the army is huge because the army is paying relatively well compared to what they get there, to what they get in the places where they live. Yeah, so in my opinion, it's extremely cynical the way, on the one hand, this regime created those socioeconomic divisions. So this is the result of 30 years of capitalism in Russia, let's say, complete devastation in those far out places, in small towns and villages. And now the regime uses the devastation it created itself in order to hire these people as professional soldiers because they have nowhere else to go. So to me, this is a sort of apogee of cynicism in this whole situation, that now the Kremlin uses those people who are completely destitute as soldiers in this completely senseless uh, war. Yeah, this is the second group of people. Then from Chechnya, as I understand, most of the fighters from Chechen Republic, they're not, in fact, in the regular army. They are in uh, Rosgvardia, which is more like the National Guard. So most of them are, in fact, not sent to breach the defenses of Ukrainians. They're sent in the second wave to control the already occupied territories. So this is the approach, as I understand, because it's difficult to say what's going on on the front because information is very incomplete. But this is what I get, that Chechens are mostly in Rosguardia units. Then there are private mercenaries 
like uh, the Wagner Group, Notorious Wagner Group, that was previously active in, well, everywhere where Russia went, in Africa, in Syria as well. So now they are in Ukraine. And if you read their Telegram channels, apparently it's not just the infantry. So it's not just the special forces. They even have their own aviation, as I understand. So it's mm. a private mercenary group with their own fighter jets. So it's, it's a weird sort of arrangement. But they're, they're also fighting there. So there are some other groups, maybe some foreign fighters on the Russian side as well. So it's a combination of different groups of soldiers. And this variety is the result of the fact that they don't want to have a mass mobilization, mass conscription. Therefore, they try to draft people into these even private mercenary groups in order to avoid mobilization that will just draft everyone in the Russian army. But that looks like, you know, one of the things that they will be doing in the future, if it's true that they're lifting the age now way above 40 for conscription, which shows that there's not enough troops available. But it also invites much more opposition to the war, too, from people who don't want to go, even though you're painting a picture of of total control over various, not just in the military, but in, in the civilian sector as well. So maybe we should move. I know I could talk to you for another hour just on this aspect, but we have a lot to do. And I, and you've written about the way that, you know, Russia has become the most unequal place on the planet, perhaps next to the United States and maybe more than the United States due to the neoliberal reforms. And there's been, we know, a stagnant economy since 2000, what? 11, 12. It took a little longer for the effects of the world crisis to hit Russia. And that Putin, you know, whereas he enjoyed popularity but still cheated on elections, he no longer does, or at least didn't before this war. I interviewed uh, Boris Kagalitsky, who said in the elections in September, he outright falsified so many of them because, you know, there was no support. And then, of course, he's also worried about mass protests. In Belarus, in Kazakhstan, the workers and, you know, around former near abroad, let's call it, infecting Russia. And then there's the Ukraine problem. So I'd like to get a better picture of Putin's control, let's say, in that respect and his motivation. If you could go into that, then I want to talk about opposition at home. We have to do all of that in about 10 minutes. Okay, so I will start with. The fact that all authoritarian regimes seem very solid until they are undone by popular protests or some elite opposition. You know, it always happens suddenly, and then it becomes clear that the foundation was very weak for this regime. But currently, at this moment, it's hard to see how can this regime be toppled, because yes, it's becoming increasingly unpopular. But at the same time, it just relies on blunt force, uh, on repression, on persecution to isolate and to destroy threats. So some people say that the whole thing, the war was launched for domestic reasons. Ultimately, the war was launched for domestic reasons in order to strengthen the regime, to increase the capacity for repression, because in wartime, all kinds of emergency measures are allowed, right? So even without announcing martial law, something like this. So I don't think it's true because the war actually increased the fragility of the regime because Mm. it really puts to test all the structures of authoritarianism in Russia. So the elites cannot be happy about this. So Russian elites are extremely cynical, hedonistic, nihilistic in a sense, And then they're thrown into this situation where you're now against the whole world. So I don't think that most people in the elite, both economic and political elite, they like this situation where against the the whole world. So they're not fanatics. They're not fanatics, but uh, they cannot do anything at this point. So it's not like they, they can express their discontent, but they cannot be happy about the situation. Right. And so this really puts the structure of regime to test. On the other hand, again, we know from political science that ultimately authoritarian regimes, they can maintain their power if they have a coherent repressive apparatus. 
right? So if they have intelligence, if they have police, special services working consistently to destroy threats. And I think this is still happening in Russia because uh, Putin put all his bets into FSB, essentially. And now I think that he relies on FSB to solve every problem to solve mm. domestic problems. He even relied on FSB to solve uh, the Ukrainian problems. So he wanted FSB to sort of corrupt Ukrainian politicians, you know, to lay the groundwork for this invasion. But this was completely unsuccessful and FSB completely failed at that. But then it's much easier to fight unarmed civilians in Russia than uh, the actual Ukrainian army. And so in that respect, uh, I think that this, so, so this regime still has the ability to maintain itself, you know, despite everything. What about, now this is the other thing that we saw in a 48-hour period from April 26th to 28, a series of explosions at military facilities, a chemical plant, at an oil plant, at a, a research facility. And many people were saying these were not just explosions, but fires, that this you know, this was clearly some oppositional action. Nobody knew if it came from a dissident faction in the military or where it came from. But I guess the question is, do you have any information, not just about that, but about these kinds of actions from people who are opposing the regime and the war? Right. So I don't really have any reliable knowledge on that. And this can be a lot of things. This can be actually motivated political activists, a sort of civil disobedience. This can also be some kind of Ukrainian agents operating in Russia. So completely possible. But also I heard rumors that basically Ukrainian special services hire some Russian people through Darknet. And so, for instance, pay with Bitcoin for these small acts of sabotage. And uh, a lot of desperate people are ready to perform them for this kind of remuneration. So like throw a Molotov cocktail into the military conscription office and then you get like a Bitcoin or something. So th this sounds like a good deal for some people. I, I have no idea whether this is true, but I think it is sort of believable. This is believable. Right. So we don't have a lot of time left. And I just want to say now, Ilya, my David, I want to invite you back and we'll have a deeper discussion, a longer discussion. But can I just ask you then to speculate on the way this all ends and any kind of post-war Russia? Do you see it with Putin? And how do you basically see the end game here? Currently, uh, everything depends on the situation on the battlefield, I think. So th this might be the most important thing. And the question is, will Ukraine be capable of a broad counteroffensive? So will Ukraine be actually capable of reclaiming some of its territory? And I don't have a definite answer because on the one hand, it's a very uh, extremely dangerous and very difficult task to reclaim this territory from Russian occupation. And Russian army is still uh, very strong. On the other hand, Ukraine does have soldiers. They also have weapons from the West, and they definitely have motivation. So to me, it's really unclear whether they will be fully successful, partially successful, not successful at all, but everything will depend on this. And if Ukraine will be successful in launching this counteroffensive and reclaiming a lot of territory back, at this point, I think that Putin will really be in trouble because it is his war and he's basically losing it. So it's going to be difficult for him to explain what's going on. And also among the elite, there is going to be discontent because he pushed everyone to be against the whole world. And now he even lost the war. So, so this is going to be a huge blow for him, obviously. But another scenario is that Russia will finally seize the whole of Donbass and then uh, fortify those areas, and then try to force Ukraine to have peace negotiations or some ceasefire negotiations. Or so partition. Also, or, yeah. Yeah. Something like this. It, it's also possible, but then uh, it, it will be easier for Putin. But long term, I would say that this situation is sort of doomed. I don't think that this regime will last more than, I don't know, 
10 years, for instance. It's, it's difficult for me to imagine because Russia is not Iran in the sense that we don't have religious legitimacy. So uh, Iranian Islamic Republic was built on different foundation. So Russia was not built on this coherent ideology. So Putin's Russia was built on money. And now, right. and now suddenly they have to replace money with some kind of fanatic imperial nationalism. I don't see how it works in the long term. Well, I think this is really revealing, and I do want to go deeper into it because it seems that Putin is reaching both to the Stalinist and Tsarist past in a way. But what you've just described means that it's impossible for him in the long run, but who knows what the short run is in terms of how long he can maintain power, especially as he's divided all of the you know other segments of the society. We've really run out of time, and I, it seems like that's a kind of like a cliffhanger for the next episode. <laughs> but uh, Ilya, I want to thank you so much for sharing those insights and for staying up so late to talk to us today. Ilya is a researcher specializing in Russian politics and political economy. Look for him on Twitter. It's Ilya Matveev, M-A-T-V-E-E-V underscore. And he also is a founding editor of Open Left, RU, and a member of the research group Public Sociology Laboratory. But you can just find him almost anywhere. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Ilya. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine, and special thanks to Robert Brenner, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.